happen to this story. This story is in the introduction of um, a commentary on the book of Hebrews, and I thought that that was pretty remarkable that someone would write this, you know, four or five hundred page commentary and they would start with a story. Um, but I found that the story was helpful for me to understand the introduction of the book, which is the purpose of the story. So after I read the story, I'll be asking you questions like, who wrote this book and who is he writing to and why did he write it and what was the occasion and where were these people located and things like that. So let's, um, let's just listen here for a couple minutes. Antonius, and this is totally made up by the way, so there's, there's no like, like direct references to scripture in it. Antonius sat alone in a deteriorating second story apartment located in a slum on the slope of the Esquiline Hill in Rome. As rain pelted the age-worn wall outside, a, wall, a plate of bread and vegetables and a cup of sour wine rested on the makeshift table. The room had turned dark with the coming of the storm and Antonius lit a small lamp against the gloom. With the light, hungry roaches materialized, scampered to the dark safety of cracks in the wall. In the apartment next door, a baby cried and the infant's father screamed obscenities at the infant's mother. An urgent conversation rose and then faded as some unseen pair of business partners walked down the stairs. Somewhere in the muddy street below, a unit of Roman soldiers marched past, driven under sharp orders under, from its commander. Antonius sat alone, thinking. That morning, his employer, a rough burly fellow named Brutus, once again turned from the task of pricing fruits and vegetables to ridicule this young Christian. The verbal jabs had become as annoying as gnats darting to and fro in the shop's pungent air. Brutus was big, obnoxious, and cruel. Antonius cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back out of his hurt and embarrassment. Every time he turned the other cheek, it received a slap in kind. Yet he bit his lip, nursed his wounded pride, and again asked the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. Persecution of the church in Rome had yet to result in martyrdom, but since the expulsion of Jews under the emperor Claudius, Christians had continued to be harassed to various degrees by both Jews and pagans. Upon the expulsion, some had suffered imprisonment, beatings, and the seizure of their properties. That was almost 15 years ago now. Antonius had not been part of the Christian church at that time, but he had heard about the conflict. In fact, his own gr grandfather, ruler of the synagogue of the Augustinus, had been one of the most outspoken opponents of the Christians. When at 17, Antonius converted to Christianity, the old man almost died, declaring Antonius dead in a shouting match that ended in tears and a tattered relationship. In recent months, abuse of the church had escalated with the amused, amused approval of the emperor himself, and now emotional fatigue was taking its toll. Footsteps in the hall, a scream in the night, meaningless events that, nevertheless, set Antonius's heart racing. He had been told the cost of following the Messiah, but somehow his experience was different than he expected. In the beginning, he thought his joy would never be broken, that he would always feel the presence of God. He had been taught that the Lord, the righteous judge, would vindicate his new covenant people. Did not the scriptures, speaking of the Messiah, say that God had put all things in subjection under his feet? But the church had taken a great beating lately, and members of its various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether Christ was really in control. In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears against their cries for relief. Some in their disillusionment doubted and left the church altogether. 
Antonius remembered the traditions of the synagogue and the support of the Jewish community, the joy of the festivals and the solemn celebrations of the Jewish calendar. He appreciated the fellowship of Christ's community, but genuinely missed the traditions of his ancestors, and he missed members of his family. He watched them from a distance as they walked together by the market to the Tiber River. Some of them would still not speak to him and passed him on the street as they would a Gentile. That was difficult, and today his loneliness closed in around him like a dark, damp blanket. To make matters worse, he was one of the poorer members of the church. When Antonius became a Christian, he lost his job as a tailor's apprentice in the Jewish quarter. He now spent his days sorting rotting produce, sweeping the floor, swatting flies, and receiving orders from obnoxious Roman slaves shopping for rich mistresses. He stooped so low as to take pieces of rotten fruit home to supplement his meager food supply. Even rich men's slaves fared better. Earlier in the week, Gaius, the kitchen slave of an equestrian who lived in the area, tossed him a handful of overripe figs, saying, Here, Christian, change your cannibalistic diet by taking a bit of good fruit. Laughter hung with the gnats in the air. To be poor and a Christian invited double portions of ridicule. Antonius had missed the weekly meal and worship for the past two weeks, and his heart had cooled somewhat toward the little house group. A spiritual itch in the back of his spirit warned him, cautioning him concerning his loss of perspective. Yet in recent days, he had begun to snuff such thoughts from his mind as quickly as they came. Antonius's bitterness over his current circumstances was growing and slowly obscuring the truth. That night, the believers were to meet for worship and encouragement. Rumor had it that the leaders had received a document from back east somewhere. Although discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again, Antonius's curiosity was aroused, and he decided to travel the short distance to the neighborhood house at which the fellowship was to meet. Entering the gathering room, he spoke greetings to several friends who also looked tired from the day's work. The hostess offered something to drink and friendly banter, but dejection hung like a cloud over the room. When the meal was finished, the group's leader, a good and godly man of almost 70 years, finally arrived. Joseph was a bit out of breath, having come from a meeting with the other leaders halfway across the city. He was visibly moved as he stood smiling before the group of about 20, his hands shaking slightly from advancing age. After a few words of introduction, Joseph took a deep breath and explained he had talked the other leaders into allowing this group the first reading of the scroll. With a twinkle of his eye, the elder said, I believe you will find this quite relevant. He unrolled the first part of the parchment and began reading with vigor. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. That took a little longer than I expected. <laughs> so what are some reactions to that, some thoughts? Some of those questions I was asking, who was writing and who's writing this book and who's he writing to? And does anyone jump in? Lisa. She didn't, she didn't answer that question. 
<laughs> Any other thoughts, reactions? Craig. Tornius was, uh, he was going through the story. <coughs> yes, so he's a new Christian and he's expecting things to be different and uh, he's fighting bitterness against his enemies. He's feeling the bitterness and just at just the right time that man shows up with a scroll, with a letter to encourage mm -hmm. him greatly at the time when he needed it the most. Yeah. Right, good. Did you catch where Antonius lived? He lived in Rome. So there's a postulate that here that the believers that the writer was writing to lived in Rome. The reason for that comes from the end of Hebrews. It's in chapter 13, actually the next to last verse, I think it is, where he says, those that are from Italy greet you. So the thought is that there was people from Italy with the writer who were sending greetings back to Rome. So that's kind of the setting. Any other observations about this? The fact that um, the man gave him uh, overripe things or whatever it was yes. and said, here, take this from this cannibalism. Yeah. That's very striking. Yeah. Uh, so they must have thought that Christians, when they got <coughs> together and they did communion, were actually, you know, eating and drinking the water. Right. Not understanding that. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah, Mike. That's right. Yeah. Good. Good. So this book is written probably about 15 years after Romans was written. Okay, so Romans was written for the purpose of explaining these deep theological truths of, of Scripture, especially about salvation. Hebrews is written for a different purpose. Although it talks about salvation a lot, it really is focused on encouraging believers who are discouraged in their walk with the Lord. And specifically, to address believing Jews who may be tempted to go back to Judaism. And he wants to show that that is not the right answer. That's not right, the right answer. So in order to accomplish this purpose, he uses a few different um, tools. The first tool that he uses, this writer, who I just totally skipped that, sorry. The writer is unknown. We don't know who wrote this book. So there's a lot of speculation about who it could be. Um, but as Eusebius said at the top of the notes, God only knows who wrote this book. So that's as much time as I'm going to spend on it. I mean, people have written like long theological articles about this arguing one way or another, but, um, but that's, it's an unknown fact. So the writer, though, wants to show these believers that they need to keep believing, not that they start believing, so not initiating salvation, but to continue to believe. And he does this three ways. First of all, by showing that Jesus is better than anything else. And he's going to do that throughout the book through the use of comparisons. And he, in using comparisons, he doesn't have to show that something is bad and Jesus is good. He shows that things are good, but Jesus is better. He's way better. And so we're going to see that pop up a lot of times. He's going to show that Jesus is awesome. That word has been watered down in our society. But it is really applicable to Jesus. And if Jesus is awesome, who else do you need? What else do you need? It reminds me of John 6. Jesus had just fed the 5,000. 
He gave this speech that caused a lot of people to go away. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, will you also go away? And what did Peter say in response? Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. Peter knew an important fact that Jesus was the one who could give life. He was the one that could articulate it, and Jesus was the only one. He understood that Jesus was better than what the Pharisees were teaching and what all of these people around them were trying to live in the Old Testament Mosaic system. Jesus was better, and that left him no place else to go. So the first thing the writer does is to show that Jesus is better. That's the focus. You could take this book and use it as a biography of Jesus and write down everything that it says about Jesus, and you'll come to this conclusion. Jesus is awesome. Second, the writer accomplishes his purpose by encouraging believers to draw near to God. Throughout the book, I put as one of the key words, let us. Let us do this. Let us do that. He includes himself in this. He doesn't say, you should. There's no finger shaking. It is arm around the shoulder. Let us do this. And one of the things that he says seven times is draw near. Six times is specifically draw near to God. One time is the day of Christ is drawing near, which is Jesus drawing near to us. He encourages believers to draw near to God. We can be close to God. We should want to be close to God. But sin can blur the vision of that goal. And that can result in, that disobedience through sin can result in a loss of faith. And that loss of faith is going to result in lack of nearness. So what do we have to do? We have to reverse that process, confess that sin, draw near to God. And then third, he has warnings for believers. And he warns believers five different, in five different passages in the book of Hebrews that throwing in the towel of faith is dangerous. It's very dangerous. And the warnings take different, different tones. There's different levels of um, danger expressed. And we'll look at those warnings one by one as we come, come to them in the text. So we need to see Jesus for who he is. We need to be encouraged to draw near to God. And we need to be warned that failing to believe is dangerous. So let's move on to our first chapter now. Our first question in chapter one. In the, in the first four verses, um, the first four verses, a couple of commentators have said that this is like the most perfect sentence in the Greek New Testament because of how it explains who Jesus is. So this first comparison that the writer makes in verses one and two is that Jesus is better than the prophets. In these old days, God had spoken to people through the reader's fathers, but now he has spoken to us through his own son. And we see him linking God's son and God's word, and that's gonna happen throughout the book. Here's where it starts. And you know, just as an aside, since Jesus came and spoke to us, there's no need for further revelation. Let that sink in. There's no need for further revelation because Jesus came and he spoke and the canon closed. So we can be confident that we have in our hands the word of God exactly as he wanted us to have it. 
So let's get to our first question here. So the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince us to keep following Jesus even when life is hard. One tack he takes is describe how awesome Jesus is. So what are some descriptions of Jesus in verses 1 through 4? There's a bunch of them. I got probably 10 written down. So just give me, give me like one or two each. Andy. God. Son of God. Son of God, good. The exact imprint of God. The exact imprint. Yeah. He's heir to all things. Great. Creator of the world. Great. Upholds all things by the word of his power. Upholds all things by the word of his power. I've been looking over here. Mike, did you? Yeah, I'm just going to say that by himself purged our sins. Barb. Radiance of the glory of God. Isn't that awesome? Sometimes we think, what does the glory of God look like? Well, here it is. It looks like Jesus. Joanne. Purifier of sin. That's great. There's a lot of them. What does this, what is this description of Jesus, letting this sink in, how does this help us walk with the Lord? How does this help us keep following him? Yeah, Julia. It shows us how worthy he is of all of our worship and glory. He's worthy of all of our worship and glory. That's awesome. Thank you. Barb. If Jesus is so awesome, I just want to keep following him, right? Ty. Control yields trust. Understanding control. Mike, you have something else there? No, that's it. Okay, great. Now, let's think about this introduction for a minute. This introduction is different than what we have seen in other epistles. Usually in the epistles, we have seen something like Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to all of the saints in Philippi or Galatia or something, right? And so the author is identified, the recipient is identified, and it's clearly a letter. We don't see that here. And this fact, along with some structural things, has made a lot of people think that this was actually a sermon before it was a letter. There's things at the end of the book that are very much like a letter. There's like closing remarks, you know, all these people in Italy greet you, for example, that we already talked about. But it, this appears to be a written down sermon. So that's interesting to note. Second, we see at the end of this first four verses a reference to angels. And now the rest of chapter one is going to be dealing with angels. So I'm going to ask you now, but not answer the question. What's the big deal with angels? What's this all about? But let's answer this question first, and we'll come back to that after we talk about this. So the writer compares Jesus to angels and says, Jesus is better than angels because, so we'll go through these in order. No angel has inherited a more excellent name. Good. All right, God never said that any angel was begotten. Now, these are a little confusing because this next one, you could have put son in 5a, but 5b, God never called any angel son, all right? Now, six. Now, this one's a little, the next couple are a little harder because they're not like straight out of the text. No angel deserves to be worshipped. Good. No angel is anointed to 
sit on God's throne. Lordship, good. Anything else? I said reign, but everything you just said was built into that. And then, the, um, then in 10 and 12, no angel has created the earth. Oh, I got one more. God never invited any angel to sit at God's right hand. So why compare Jesus to angels? So now we'll answer that question. So the thought is, in Jewish tradition, believed that angels assisted in the transmission of the Mosaic law. Now this is something I either had forgotten or never learned uh, because this was new to me as I studied this. But they point to, the commentators point to three verses in scripture that actually intimate this. And it starts in Deuteronomy 33, we're not going to take the time to turn to all of these, but I'll just read you the, the relevant phrase and then how it ties in. So in De- Deuteronomy 33, this is at the end of Moses' life. He's talking to Israel before his death, and he's relating to them how he received the law from God. And he said, and he, God, came from t- with ten thousands of his holy ones, referring to angels. Now that little phrase is, a, is, the, is the key phrase upon which all of this thought is built. Fast forward to the New Testament and Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. And right after he indicted the Pharisees for murder, he said, you who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. So Stephen is reflecting and giving us a little bit more insight as to what Deuteronomy 33 was meaning and how the angels had this role in helping deliver the law. And then Paul picks it up in Galatians 3.19. He says, why then the law, I'll leave some of this, the verse out, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the angels evidently were there on Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Moses and evidently played some role in that, although it's not completely clear. Here's the point. The point is Jesus is better than angels who were there when the law was given and he was better than the prophets through whom God gave us the Old Testament. Jesus is better. So now look ahead to chapter 2 and verse 2 and we see a reference to the message declared by angels. So he's referring to it again. And so this is a reference to the Mosaic Covenant. So while while the Mosaic Covenant was imperfect, in that it could not save, it was reliable and consistent, and every sin was punished. And so this brings the writer to a conclusion that we'll address in our next question. So in chapter 2, verse 1, what is the conclusion the writer draws from his argument that Jesus is better than angels? What is the conclusion? Cynthia. If I think Jesus is better than the angels, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard from him, lest we drift away from it. Excellent. Excellent. We need to pay close attention to Jesus so that we don't drift away from the message that he has. If what the angels were saying was good, what Jesus has to say is better. He is arguing from the lesser to the greater. So listen up. Pay attention. This is important. Comprehend what I'm saying. Pay attention to Jesus. It's critical to listen to him. Why? So that you don't drift away. Now, this is the first of our five warning passages. What's the purpose of a warning label on a product? Deception. 
to, to protect, yeah. So I saw a warning label on a cup of coffee this week that said hot, you know, caution, contents are hot. Okay, it's not an iced coffee, got it? All right. So warning signs call our attention to a danger so that we pay attention, so that we're not negligent, so that we don't get injured. The purpose of the five warning passages in Hebrews is to focus our attention on spiritual danger. This, this chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 warning calls our attention to the danger of neglecting God's word lest we drift away from what we have heard. The warning here is not against taking some sinful action that we should avoid, but it's just simply failing to pay attention. And so he says, pay attention. Be careful. Don't drift away. So it's like a warning label on a boat. Failure to tie the boat securely to the dock may result in the boat drifting away. You think, oh, well, that's not so severe. Well, I mean, if you're on an island and the boat's your only means of escape, then it could be a problem, right? So I was looking for a warning label like this. Evidently, they don't put that warning label on boats, right? So here's the warning label I could find with the boat. I thought it was kind of humorous. It's a falling hazard. The boat is moving. You're standing up. You might fall off. So pay attention. All right. So why should we pay attention? Because the message is credible. And the credibility is described through three evidences. What are, what are those three evidences? In verses three and four, I think it is. Yeah. Okay. So first evidence, Jesus declared it. <clears throat> this is an echo of chapter 1, verse 2, spoken to us by his son. Second, those who heard attested to it, referring to the apostles, the end of verse 3. And then verse 4, God bore witness through signs, wonders, miracles, and gift gifts. The case is closed, the evidence is in. It all points to great salvation through Jesus. He's awesome. All three persons of the Trinity involved. What should be the impact here? The impact should be our faith should be built up because of the reliability of the word of God, causing us to persevere in our faith even when life is difficult. Salvation is only in Jesus. All right. In verse 8 at the end, what did God give to Jesus? I'm going to just read through the answers to this one because I need to pick up my pace a little bit, all right? So in 8b, God gave Jesus authority. He put him in, he put everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. He made Jesus the sovereign Lord. Jesus is in charge. That should give us great comfort in difficulty. But there's things that we don't see right now. What do we not see? We don't see everything in subjection to him. Sometimes it feels like everything is out of control and not in his control. What you see is not always reality. The reality is Jesus is in control. His sovereignty may not be apparent, but that does not mean it doesn't exist. The effect on Jesus' authority by us not seeing it is none. We, but what we do see now is that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. The humiliation that he endured through the incarnation and substitutionary death was the first step toward his glorification. And here, in, ver in chapter 2, verse 9, the first time Jesus is named. I thought that was interesting. When he's talking all about Jesus so much, and he takes a chapter and a half before he even mentions him by name. And the effect on our faith, I hope, would be that it would be strengthened by seeing Jesus' love and humility 
and the fact that he is in control. All right, let's move on to chapter 3. So what invitation does the writer offer in verse 1 based on Jesus' superiority to angels, his authority, and his credibility? It's an invitation here. This isn't a warning, it's an invitation. Okay. Consider Jesus. So I've, I've picked this out as the key verse of the book. This is what we need to do. We need to think about him. We need to contemplate him. How is he described here? It's a little bit simpler this time than in those earlier verses. High priest. High priest is one. There's two more. Apostle, one that is sent. Appointed by God. Very good. He's, and he's faithful. He's faithful. Who's, he, who's his faithfulness compared to? Moses. So what was the capacity of Moses? Moses' faithfulness? As a servant, that's right. He was a servant in the house of Israel. And what capacity was Jesus faithful? He was faithful as a son over the house of God, which is, did you catch this in the verse? It's us. We are the house, the church. So Moses was faithful in Israel. Jesus is faithful. He was in Israel. Jesus is faithful over the church. His authority is over us. See what's happening here? Moses is good. Jesus is better. Jesus is awesome and he's in control. So then, beginning in verse 7, the writer introduces the concept of entering into rest. Now, this concept and this passage from here through the end of chapter 4 are subject to a variety of interpretations that we could spend a lot of time on that we don't have. So what we're going to do, first of all, is focus on what the text actually says, and then we'll talk about it a little bit as to what it, what it means. So the verses 7 through 11 are quoted, interestingly, from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. I thought that parallelism in the verses was kind of cool. So who is being addressed in that passage? Who is Psalm 95 talking to? Israel, yeah, Israel. And then verse 12 tells us who the writer is addressing in this passage. Who is that? Use a specific word. Brothers, okay. So those that are of a common family. Now verse 12, I should have said, this is the second warning passage. And this is a longer one. The first one was just four verses at the beginning of chapter 2. This one goes from the middle of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 4. It's, I, I just have a hard time imagining this guy's sermon where he's doing these things and he's encouraging you and he says, but I'm going to go down this rabbit trail and warn you about these things. And I'm going to come over here and I'm going to talk about how Jesus is awesome again. And then I'm going to go over here and I'm going to warn you again. And there's this little bit of a ping pong that's going back and forth as he, as he weaves these things in. Verse 12, I think, is the heartbeat of the second warning. And that is, take care to not fall away. This is another negligence-based warning, take care. It sounds a little bit more severe. Instead of drifting away, it's falling away. And so we have another warning. I thought I had another picture here. Did I miss it? 
Well, maybe it's coming, I've just forgotten where it is. All right, so here we have a warning label that we would see perhaps on a ladder that says, caution, falling hazard, improper use may result in slipping, falling, injury, and death. <laughs> falling away spiritually is much more dangerous than falling off a tall ladder. What would you do to not fall away? Experts would say, when you're going up and down a ladder, you need three points of contact. So you only have one hand that's off at a time, one foot that's off at a time. You don't do one hand, one foot. Hang on to the ladder. The lesson here is hang on to Jesus. Don't fall away. Would you consider yourself to be a fall risk? Only you can answer that. But this results from, the, the risk of falling results from lack of faith, unbelief. The risk is, I've got myself totally messed up on my slides. Okay, the risk of falling away is that. What is the solution? Let's just get back to the questions. What is the solution that the writer's promoting in 13a? Exhort one another. So he doesn't say double down on discipline. It says this is a community responsibility that we are to exhort each other to not fall away, to not drift away, to don't fall off the spiritual ladder. We need each other. And we need to be willing to be both on both ends of the exhortation stick, both exhorting and accepting exhortation. So if someone says to you, keep walking with the Lord, the answer is not, what do you think? I'm not going to walk with the Lord? That's not it. That's just pride. It's like, thank you. I need that encouragement. Every day is a struggle. I need to walk with the Lord. So who can you exhort today was the, the application question. And let me exhort you today with this. Jesus is awesome. Follow him. That's my exhortation for you today. There, I've done this verse. <laughs> what are you going to do today to exhort someone else that's here to keep following Jesus? There's no one else like him. Where else are you going to go? So, so just to answer the rest question, or to talk about the rest question, I don't know if I'm going to answer it. So I'm going to tell you what one commentator said, which I, th I feel is, pretty, is a pretty good answer. Um, it says, be careful. The, the, the writer is saying, be careful not to enter the pattern of the Exodus generation, which was unbelief by failing to enter even now, which is a foretaste of God's eternal future end time rest. So the big debate is, do, does this rest apply to what we are experiencing here on earth, or is it only talking about our eternal home in heaven? There are elements of both of those throughout, these, throughout the, the text. So the, the commentator goes on to say, although some believe that the writer has in view either an entirely present or an entirely future rest, the following section, meaning the ones we just read, makes most sense if the rest is understood as being already inaugurated but awaiting consummation, while he looks primarily to the future as indicated by the need to continue striving to enter the rest. Um, that makes sense that there would be a future rest that touches the experience of this life. All right, let's move on. Chapter 4. 
So look for four times that the words let us are used in this chapter and note that the writer includes himself, it's a plural inclusive pronoun, us. He includes himself in these exhortations. Which of these exhortations hit home the most for you? So let's, let's answer them and then if somebody wants to answer that last question that's just kind of personal, that's okay. So first of all, verse one, let us what? Fear what? That ties right in with the, with the language from the text. The fear of not entering into the rest. So each of these are a phrase, I should have said. The, those, the answers on the last one were mainly one-word answers, but these are each a phrase. So number, number 11, <laughs> verse 11, let us strive to enter that rest. In verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. Hang on to it. Here's something that we need, we need to hang on to that ladder. Verse 16, let us draw near to the throne of grace. There's a progression here. Which of these exhortations hit home for you? Anybody? Maybe just take one, two. Thank you. So if we put these exhortations all together, the writer is providing a remedy to the warning about failing to enter God's rest. He strongly encourages the audience to persevere in their faith, to keep believing and not go back. And when the believer perseveres, this last encouragement evidences that rest in the present day is possible. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. We can walk into the throne room of God with confidence. Boldly, not brashly, not presumptively, but with confidence. Why? Because, not because we're special, but because Jesus is awesome. Why? Because Jesus paid for all of our sins. He made access to God possible. His body was like the curtain that was torn in two, giving us access into the Holy of Holies where God dwelt. We can have access to God himself because of Jesus. And as his child, because Jesus has paid for our sins, we can walk into the throne room of God and lay our heart on his throne and say, God, I have a need, and I need you to meet it. And what does he do? What does he do for us? He meets that need. It says he has grace and mercy to meet our needs. That last one was what hit home with me. Second question in chapter four. There's a second example of rest that the writer provides in verse four. The first example was the children of Israel in the wilderness. What is that second example? God rested. God rested when? After creation, so God worked, as much work as it was for him to speak a word, six days, and then God rested and said it is all good. So what is it that we need to rest from? Who needs the rest? Well, who, let's just back up. Who needs rest normally? People that are tired. So how do we get tired? 
we work, we exercise, we do things with our body and with our mind, and we need to, we need some downtime, we need to rest, we need to sleep. So the view here is that while rest will come eternally when we go to heaven, the example of God resting on the seventh day, to me, is particularly poignant for the Hebrew audience who had left Judaism a system of works. Do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. By resting in the complete work of Jesus, they would be able to rest from the labor of Mosaic law, implied don't go back to work. This is spiritually, not like what you're going to do tomorrow, right? We've got to go back to work tomorrow. But spiritually, he's saying to these Jewish people who had been working, 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 trying, striving to please God through what they did their entire lives, stop that. Trust. Believe. And you will please God through your obedience after that. All right. In verses 11 through 13, what are the two things that help us enter the rest and keep from falling. This is a little bit more nuanced. I put it in two, in two categories. What God says, God's word, and what God sees. So what God says is his word, and it surgically excises sinful thoughts and motives, and then what God sees, he uses to hold us accountable. The comparison here of God's word is the very common known comparison to a sword, often a weapon, always a tool. Here it's viewed like a surgical instrument, which is so sharp and cut so fine that it can divide things that aren't even apparent that they are two separate things, the thoughts and intents of our heart. The point here is that God uses his word to get to our unseen thoughts and motives. That's where sin starts. Sin doesn't start in our actions. That's where we see the result of sinful thoughts and motives. We need God's word. And who was called God's word? John 1. Jesus. Wow, it all comes back to him. Isn't that amazing? We need more of God's word to help us, what? Keep believing, to persevere in our faith, to prevent us from drifting, to prevent us from falling, to prevent us from failing to continue to believe, keeping us from sin that can harden us and make us walk away from the faith. Verse 16, what are we encouraged to do? This is a verse we already talked about. We're encouraged to draw near to the throne of grace. Let us then... With confidence, the manner in which we're to do this is to draw near with confidence. And why are we to do it? To get mercy and grace because we're needy people. We got lots of needs. Now, I didn't ask this question in the notes, but let me ask this question to you. What are some reasons why we might not come confidently before the throne of grace? Like, why aren't we doing this? Sin. If we have unconfessed sin in our, in our lives, then probably not real anxious to walk before a holy God who's going to hold us accountable. Other thoughts? Lisa. Hmm. 
struggling in her thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, Yeah, there's a fear about ourselves there. Perhaps we haven't been letting God's word do its surgical work. We haven't been spending time in God's word letting the Holy Spirit speak to us, convict us of sin. We may feel guilty because we're being tempted. It may be because we're missing the point that Jesus gets us. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And he's for us. He wants us to not sin. He knows that we're going to be tempted and often sin, but he wants us to trust him for the victory. We may be overlooking the fact, the simple fact, that God is inviting us into his presence. God is inviting us to walk into the throne room and tell him what we need. It's not that he doesn't know. He wants us to admit it, (laughs) that we are not in control. Jesus is, and Jesus is awesome. You can be as close to God as you want to be. So if you don't feel close to God, then who moved? It wasn't God. The invitation is open. Draw near to Jesus because he is awesome. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for how you portray your son Jesus Christ in this, these first few chapters of Hebrews. We just lift him up in worship, and we look forward to doing that here in a few minutes in the congregation all together, praising you, praising him for how awesome Jesus is. We thank you in his name.